Hello, you're with Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environmental and social justice stories. Today's story, Cassowaries and Crocs, was produced on the Yidinji Nation in Gimoy, Wallaburra, Cairns, for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri Country, and broadcast nationally through the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. What's very big has three toes, a blue helmet, and makes the lowest call of any bird. The low call of the southern cassowary. Now we'll meet Ingrid Marker from Mission Beach in Queensland, who lived alongside the endangered cassowary and now is a champion to save this amazing bird. Hi, my name's Ingrid. I moved up to the wet tropics 28 years ago from Sydney and I bought a beautiful six-acre property that I turned into a tropical orchard and I actually learnt to believe it was a privilege to live adjoining World Heritage sites. But it does hold a level of responsibility, I believe, to protect the biodiversity from threats and do whatever we can to enrich the cultural, national and natural heritage for future generations to enjoy. Ingrid, you're known as the cassowary whisperer. Please tell me why. Well, we were soon to learn that we had nine endangered cassowaries as frequent visitors to our property, and they were helping themselves to our organic tropical fruit. And during this time, I had two young boys, and we named the cassowaries, as you can easily identify each individual. The journey began and we became citizen scientists. We were recording their behaviour, their mating, the chicks, chick rearing, the diet and how they cope with different seasons and particularly with cyclones. How can you tell an individual cassowary? What are some of the differences? Oh, their personality, the way they look, their cast, which is the helmet type thing on the top of their head, that's called a cast, their wattle, their size, but a lot by their personality, much like people can identify between individual people or their pets or horses and different other animals, you can readily tell the difference between each one. Yeah, so during this time, one of the things we did realise was after Cyclone Larry and Cyclone Yasi that National Parks and Wildlife gave me two feed stations to feed the cassowaries when they were going through this tough time and keep them alive. They are very endangered, the cassowaries, and that was when I recorded that there was 18 individuals after Cyclone Larry and 28 after Cyclone Yasi that were coming in to feed at the property, the feed stations. So after 25 years of these... Amazing experiencing living with cassowaries, swimming in the creeks, walking around the orchard and watching their little stripies grow into sub-adults. You form a deep and personal connection. I guess what you'd call love. And I fell deeply in love. So did my boys with these lovely cassowaries. So when the sub-adults, it's time for the sub-adult stripies to leave home to find a maiden territory of their own, you learn that it's not an easy job. They are penned in by roads, fences and urban development and rural properties which have fences and dogs, so this can be a problem. So on the 3rd of February 2015, I was devastated when a pack of six domesticated hunting dogs trespassed into the wet tropics, World Heritage Zone... From behind my kitchen window, I heard the father, Ishmael, and his chicks, Toto and Kansas, being mauled to death. It was then that I learnt the law entrusted to protect endangered cassowaries is ineffective with ambiguous wording. This allowed the attacks to continue for many months until all the resident cassowaries and the entire family was killed. 
The domestic dogs had now become serial hunters, killing regularly and growing in confidence. Then one night they returned and they turned their sport to threaten and menace me and broke into my house. The dogs broke into your house. Ingrid, what happened next? It was terrifying. Living in the tropics, it's often hot, so you have all the windows and everything all open. So the dogs broke through the open fly screen windows. I was cooking at the time. It was absolutely terrifying. They were six hunting dogs. They're all large-bodied dogs. They've been purpose-taught and trained to hunt and kill. I've now got them in the kitchen. I jumped onto the kitchen bench. I was just throwing things at them and screaming and luckily I've got a little bit of attitude having run adventure tour companies for many years so I'm very used to reading body language of animals and sort of holding my own and I'm just grateful that I didn't have children there at the time because I don't think I could have saved my children's lives from these dogs. It was terrifying. It was then that I learnt that the laws are not being adequately enforced so that it was clear All of the animal management laws are not being enforced. So I heard all of the attacks that continued for many months. I used motion sensor cameras and I recorded all the dogs. I know what happened, documented and reported it to all the relevant authorities. There are no ambiguities on this. No action has been taken to date. The dogs are still at large. I then left my home and I was in grief. I did a road trip across the whole wet tropics and recorded stories of people who had witnessed the loss of wildlife, pets being mauled, or had been personally attacked, threatened or menaced. Many people and children lose their civil rights and their social freedoms to feel safe in their natural environment. And I just have to ask the question, what as a civilised society are we to make of this? Who are the relative bodies or authorities? Local council are responsible for enforcing the Animal Management Act, and that includes registering your dog, microchipping your dog, having it under adequate control at all times, and fencing your dog. Now, many people on rural properties don't register their dogs, and there's many irresponsible dog owners. They fail to realise the impact their dogs are having, you know, on nature and people, and people's pets. It's clear our animal management laws are not being enforced adequately, particularly in rural towns. The squeak of a baby cassowary responding to its dad's call. There's a growing culture of owning large-bodied dogs and it is increasingly dangerous feral dog problem that's growing and it's killing our native wildlife and attacking livestock and putting our lives at danger. And I need to ask once again, do we want to share our environment with roaming dogs that have been purpose-bred and trained to hunt and kill that are not regulated or owned by responsible dog owners? Something needs to change. And so I'm asking all the the viewers, if they can, you know, write to your local members, write to local council and support a private member's bill I've written to regulate hunting dogs. They should be declared a dangerous dog unless the owner can show that the dogs have actually been socialised and trained and are under effective control. They should be treated like a weapon. Ingrid, there's already been some changes to canine legislation From your actions, what were those? There was a private member's bill called Oscar's Law and there was many people that contributed 
to that, and that was to stop backyard dog breeders. We already euthanise over a quarter of a million healthy puppies annually, and there's a lot of these backyard breeders. Particularly my focus is on large-bodied dogs or dogs that are used for hunting. So these people can actually have a bitch or multiple bitches. They put out up to 11 puppies twice a year. Each puppy can be sold for up to $800 to $1,000 per puppy. So that's a really good cash cow that people are actually, or cash dog, that they're um, making money off selling dogs that are actually destroying our, our social values. Oscar's law means that all people in the state now must desex their dog. All dogs are to be desexed unless on your registration permit you apply for an exemption to have a whole dog and just pay a little bit extra. So it's not a lot. If you're caught with a whole dog or a puppy that's been recently bred from the 26th of May this year, it will be a $6,000 fine. And that's to stop this growing wild dog problem that's destroying our livestock industry and that's from Biosecurity Queensland. So a whole dog is a dog that can still reproduce? That's correct. Another thing I wanted to share with the listeners is I didn't know anything about this and I'm a dog lover. I've always owned dogs, I've had some wonderful dogs and so my children were raised with lovely dogs. But it is responsible dog ownership and I I was guilty of this myself because I used to think it was fine for my dog to chase birds along the beach and I thought, oh, he's having fun, he's not hurting them, he's not capturing them. But since I've been doing this campaign, which is three years now, I learned that You know, birds on beaches and birds in rivers and estuary mouths and all other animals that live in these zones, they're there to actually feed, to rest, to mate and raise their young. And so dogs chasing birds stresses them out, it menaces them, it prevents them, particularly migrating birds, feeding on the pippies and the worms and the uh, the crustaceans in the um, low tide marks. And also their chicks can be sitting under eggs on the beaches, under driftwood and so forth. They're they're about as big as an Easter egg and their little balls are absolutely adorable. So dragging driftwood, having bonfires on the beaches, letting your dogs roam is killing all our birds, all our beautiful shorebirds and ocean birds. So we have a responsibility to really make sure our dogs don't chase birds. They don't run in the foreshore vegetation. We keep it zoned to certain little areas. And definitely don't let your dogs go into estuary mouths where all our wildlife is. We've only got one chance at this and we've got major species decline. You're with Earth Matters. I'm Beck Horridge and today I'm here with Ingrid in a wonderful piece of remnant wetland forest in Cairns in Dingy Country. We're talking about the cassowary. Ingrid, some years back I went to the Daintree for a holiday and I so much wanted to see a cassowary. But how to see one? And then I was sitting eating my lunch in a park and suddenly before me were these giant feet. And I took a deep breath and I looked up and there was this awesome huge bird looking at me wanting my corn cracker. And although it's against the rules, I handed over the cracker because I was a little bit frightened. Ingrid, this was a wonderful moment for me. It was the peak experience of my holiday. How many cassowaries are there left? The scientists aren't sure. They believe about 1,200 are left. One of the things that is lovely about the cassowary is they're free workers. They go around moving the seeds around their landscape. They're the gardeners. They plant rainforest trees, predominantly along riparian corridors. This protects the rivers and creek systems, which therefore indirectly protects the reef. So many of the rainforest fruit trees don't actually grow unless they pass through the digestive system of a cassowary. Is that why they're called a keystone species? It is. 
yeah, they're keystone species because they need a large habitat. Because a cassowary needs a lot of area, if you protect enough habitat for a cassowary, everything else can live in that habitat, okay, in company with the cassowary. The other thing that's important about the cassowary is they're stuck in little islands of isolation, so we've got to be very mindful that we don't get inbreeding. So many people are working at creating corridors and land bridges to move them around the landscape because, yeah, they don't breed very well in captivity, if at all. The species is starting to inbreed, so we really are, it is at critical time. We need everybody to work together and stand with the cassowary for conservation. I understand the cassowaries are endangered. What are some of the things that threaten them? The main thing that's threatening cassowaries and all native wildlife is loss of habitat. That's something we all need to be concerned about and particularly joining habitat, remnant habitat together with land bridges. And the other thing is cars and development. But what my campaign is, is dogs. And there's very little being done about the roaming dogs on cassowary numbers. We're finding that cassowary chicks are being born. The adults are doing okay, not great, but okay. But we're not getting any sub-adults and teenagers and we don't know the science, doesn't know. Um, I have my theories, which I've already discussed with you, what's happening with them. So I'm, I'm joining in partnership with BirdLife Australia because we've discovered that the current environmental laws are failing. They're a toothless tiger. There's lack of monitoring and compliance on the laws and environmental conditions. There's delays in enforcing any of the laws. There's conflict between national and state responsibilities. With our poor cassowaries being caught in the middle of this, there's refusal to reject developments that affect threatened birds and failures to implement species recovery plans and ministerial discretion on resource and development projects. What's ministerial discretion mean? It's a stroke of a pen. I can make a decision and just wipe a, a, a species off the face of the planet. You know, he, he, he's allowed to do it under his own discretion. Who is the minister in this case? Well, the minister in this case, this is a federal law I'm discussing. Minister for Environment. So I'm joining with Places You Love Alliance and, and working with the Australian Panel of Environmental Experts on Environmental Laws. And so what they're doing is they're calling for a new national framework with four key elements. National environmental laws that genuinely protect Australia's natural and cultural heritage, an independent national sustainability commission, independent national environmental protection authority, and guaranteed community rights and participation in environmental decision-making. I guess that includes Indigenous rights in decision-making. Most definitely. The main thing is, you know, changing our laws, the way society views and values both nature and science is critical. And it's important to ensure that future generations have clean food, water and air and it can enjoy being inspired by a continent with rich and biodiverse ecosystem that continues to support our beautiful and unique wildlife. And this was a quote off BirdLife Australia. How beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Ingrid Marker. Ingrid, you're off to Canberra soon. What are you going to be doing? Well, I'm with a rally and we're going to be marching on Parliament House in Canberra to support the stronger nature conservation laws and to stop birds and all other animals by extinction by negligence with these toothless tiger laws. The failure of the EPBC Act to protect and conserve threatened species is most evident and what we're hoping to do is introduce these new laws with places you love and appeal. 
I'm urging all the listeners to go on to places you love, have a look, see what you think. And if you wish, join the campaign or write a submission. It's overdue. We're getting species extinction by neglect. Yeah, right. Calling for new environmental laws that really do protect our fauna and flora. Yes. You'll recognise me. I'll be the one dressed like a cassowary. You'll be dressed like a cassowary? I will. I hear you might be leading the parade or become the poster chick? I think so. Yeah, with cassowaries being the largest land animal in Australia or bird in Australia, with them being individually known and named and with a threat abatement plan and they're still falling through the cracks and going into extinction, we've all got to step up and work together. So you really do speak for the cassowary. You really are a cassowary whisperer and you're taking the cassowary right to the heart of our political system in Canberra. Have you worn a cassowary suit before? Yes, I have, a few times. Can you tell me, what's it like to really to stand in the shoes of a cassowary? What sort of movements do you make or what's it like being in there? One of the things that I learned about cassowaries is they're regal. They say nothing. It's a body language. It's a stature. Many people consider cassowaries stupid because they just walk out in front of cars. What they fail to realise is cassowaries aren't stupid. They're king and queen of the jungle. They're arrogant. They just think, oh, this truck or this car can just stop because her royal hind ass is crossing the road. Everything kowtows to a cassowary. And do you find that you can reflect that while you're wearing the suit? Oh, most definitely. How do you do that? You stand tall, you stand proud. As Margaret Thorsburn, my mentor, said, you walk quietly, speak softly, and carry a very big stick. Ingrid Marker, thank you so much for talking to Earth Matters and all the best with saving the cassowary. And all the other endangered species in its eddy. That's right. In far north Queensland, while cassowaries are in decline, crocodile numbers are reputed to be rising. Minister Knuth from Australia Qatar Party introduced the Safer Water Bills in 2017. At a public hearing in Cairns on August the 27th, stakeholders presented their wishes for managing crocodiles. The tourism industry wants culling in urban areas and even some areas that are not densely populated, anxious to avoid bad publicity after the odd crocodile attack. Safari businesses promoted croc hunting. Crocodile farms wanted more eggs and more crocs. And some Indigenous people who used to have a crocodile farm wanted to get their farm restarted. Het Yedinji Nation, traditional owner of the Cairns region, Guju Guju, gave me his permission to broadcast his people's view of crocodile management and correct attitudes towards crocodiles. He points out that the industries, tourism, crocodile skins and hunting, all have a bias to reducing numbers of crocs to increase their own profits. Our relationship with the crocodile has been here for thousands of years. I suppose I'd just like to make a statement. We don't have a crocodile problem. We have lack of snake and guana problem. And also indigenous people in regards to taking of crocodile eggs. But my issue is, like in regards to the industry, a couple of things I'd like to bring up is, you know, is Australia a signatory, I suppose, to the International Union of Conservation of Nature? and that saltwater crocodiles are critically endangered, as listed in sites, Convention for Trade and Endangered Species, would it not destroy the existing Queensland industry just for the sake of a cull of these 
endangered species, something to keep in mind. The other one is, as the government of the Commonwealth of Australia and or the state of Queensland successfully included a formal agreement or treaty with the tribal nations whose lands and seas are home to these endangered animals. And the other question is, has the sovereign Indian government been officially invited to these talks as well? Why I say that is, these animals are protected under our law as well, not just under the Australian government law. We, we feel that we haven't been able to manage our country, and we do have the capacity and experience to manage our country. I heard previously that people are having issues with crocodiles up along the beaches, even up to Formal Beach that carries our family's name. But the thing is, is these beaches and the crocodile is we, we get people removing crocodile or country and bringing them to my country. So I know that any crocodile that is a problem crocodile will be put down at Russell River, which is part of Yilindji country. Also here in Amity Island. You know, my dad spoke to the old fella who started up the crocodile farm, who was helping with the crocodile farm, I should say, up at Edward River, the Pompera. And they had talks because removal of crocodile from one place, because they have that spiritual connection to the crocodile up there, to bring him down here to the River Crocodile Farm that's just sitting on the other side of Redbank. They need to have a discussion because that crocodile is taken from that country to our people's country here. So we then have a custodial rights over that crocodile. And no one has spoken to us about that at all. And I think Ms. Deaton actually spoke about that, that spiritual connection that one has with, with the crocodile. And I think when we're talking about the crocs that are currently in some of their major rivers, it's not because they choose to be there. They are hunted to be there. They're not silly animals. We have stories about it that when we actually go hunting, one of our stories is we light fires in three different places to confuse the crocodile. The reason why we do that is crocodiles are smart. They're not silly. So you don't go fishing and hunting at the same spot all the time. They already know that the tourists are going to be at Ellis Beach. They already know that the tourists are going to be up at Formal Creek. They already know, and they don't see you as tourists. They see you as food, you know, and they have the right, given right, the God-given right, to be there and to eat you if you're going to go into their territory. The thing is, is people aren't silly. We read signs that say you shouldn't swim here because of crocodiles. If you go in and get bitten by a crocodile, is it the crocodile's fault? I don't think so. It's the human who can't read the sign that has the problem. I think when we look at how we should manage the crocodile, it's not that we should cull it in a way that the current system is talking about, is shooting them and then culling them. The only people who gain from that are not indigenous people. The industry gains from that. The tourist in industry gains because they're happy. Hello, 
will have to even get rich if more people can come to a beach and come to Australia. The other industry is the sashi and the shoe industry because, and people like Mr. Hinch in regards to getting another crocodile shoe for next year. But the thing is, is these people who are in those industries that make money out of it will gain. Our people will not gain. Yes, we can collect the eggs for you and manage it through that way. Then you wouldn't have to cull the crocodile. We have been left off country, even though in Cairns here, you know, non-indigenous people have only been in Cairns for 140 years. They haven't managed this land properly. That's why we've got a problem with crocs. You know, we also got a reef problem, but I won't talk about that here. It's about crocodiles that we're talking about. So if we're going to manage those crocodiles, we would like to be involved in how you manage it not as a bystander watching on while other people, because of their industry, they make money out of it. We're not making money. The only people who seems to be wanting to make a big deal about it and say coloured are the industry that's going to gain economically. That was Guju Guju, tribal elder of the Gimoy Wallabara Yidiji people of the Cairns area. You've been listening to Earth Matters. Today's story was produced on the Yidinji Nation in Gimoy, Wallabara, Cairns, for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally through the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio or follow us on Twitter at Earth M Radio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. That's all for today's show. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories. I'm Beck Courage. Back in 1983 and 84, people buried themselves in the ground with only their head sticking out to stop bulldozers pushing a road into the rainforest north of the Daintree River. The Nomadic Action Group took to the canopy in lengthy tree sits to protect the trees. The road eventually went through, but it's still a small road ending up in a four-wheel drive track. And the forest is now World Heritage and International Tourist Destination. Here are songsters of the times, Mook and Shanto, with A Handful of Timber from the Lock On album. Mook and Shanto have recently left this world, but leave us their songs and the forests they helped protect. For a walk in the forest, will you throw us all in jail? For the myth of employment, will you blaze the final trail? For a chance to use your power, will you strike the lethal spark? For a handful of timber, will you take our national park? For the sake of your empire, will you let them take our trees? And for multinational money, can they do just what they please? For the local country people, will you keep them in the dark? For a handful of timber, will you take our national park? 
for a politician's payoff. Will you cut the future down for the history books to witness? Will you be the criminal clown for the end of our forest? Will you give the word to start for a handful of timber? Will you take our national park? Save the Daintree National Park.